My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at Church Tawana. If you're new-ish or visiting, we haven't had a chance to connect. Normally, I'm a part of the South Shore uh, congregation, but really excited to be here with you guys this morning, see many uh, faces they don't get to see as often. Uh, over the last six weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation by the Apostle John. And for a long time, we were in pretty safe territory, not too controversial, a lot of agreement about probably what it means. Uh, but then over the last couple weekends, it's gotten more dicey. Um, you get into like the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And we're like, what do these mean? Is this something happening now? Is it happening in the future? Do they sort of Russian nesting doll fit together in certain ways? What's going on, right? Next week, that fun stuff continues with like seven plagues, seven bulls. But this morning, we have a little bit, I think, of respite. We get to take a little break. Because what John's going to do, as Ezra halfway through the book, he's going to pause, and he's going to back things way, way up. And he's going to start over, and we're going to look at this really big picture of this cosmic battle that we find ourselves in between good and evil. He's going to go really, really big picture. Now, before we jump into this, I want to do a couple of introductory things. And... Um, Who's the person who's pushing the buttons for the slides? Wave your hand to me. There we are, over here. So I will just signal to you when you do the thing. Yes. All right. So um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So a couple weeks ago, Pastor Trenton, who's in the South Shore, he said one thing that I found super helpful. So I'm going to repeat it for us here because I don't think he came here. Um, he said that this is not a lecture series on the book of Revelation. So our, our aim as we're going through this is not to teach on the text, but to preach from the text. So even though some education is natural, you're going to learn some things as we go along, that's not the main goal. The main goal is the edification and application of the text to your hearts and your lives. That's the main goal. So that's the first disclaimer. Uh, the second disclaimer is to recognize that, as we've seen, there are a number of different ways for us to interact with the book of Revelation. There's a number of different perspectives that people take in interpreting it. And as again, this morning we have a little bit of respite from that, but I'm still going to sort of like mention a few different perspectives as we go along. And so I want to just very quickly refresh what they are. Pointing for the slide. Yes. Okay. Four main views. Predator's view in summary would be, you know, most of what's happening in the book of Revelation already happened like a long time ago, around the fall of Rome or even the fall of Jerusalem, and that it's sort of, that's all talking about contemporary stuff to John's writing. Um, the historist view would say, it's actually, we're in the book right now, marching our way along, and you can point chapter and verse, there's Hitler, and here's us, and here's what's next. That's the historist view. The futurist view says, this book is about the end times, and it's all stuff that's going to happen like later in the future. And you might be thinking, I thought that was like the view. Well, it's not the only view. It's just maybe say the, the assumed view that's about the future. And then there's the idealist view. Uh, the revelation is a symbolic portrayal of the conflict between good and evil, between the forces of God and Satan. Now, because of what we're doing today in chapters 12, 13, and 14, because we're looking at this giant cosmic battle, it's going to feel and sound like this idealist view. But I want you to know that you can interpret these passages through any of these lenses. And I wouldn't even necessarily hold to an idealist view. I'd be mostly futurist with a little preterist on the side. And, um, but just that there was like some of this stuff probably did have immediate application, as prophecy usually does for the initial hearers. But I think a lot of this is to come. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that we see these patterns taking place in society now. So maybe a little of idealist as well. All right, so that kind of gives us our categories. Um, we are going to try to tackle all of this scripture. And um, as we do, we're going to see a number of characters introduced. We're going to see a woman, child, the great red dragon, beast, second beast, and the lamb. And they're all going to be sort of revealed in context. And some of these we've already heard as John's gone along in the first 11 chapters. He's like, oh, yeah, he's mentioned the beast. Uh, but now we're going to back up and we're going to get all in sequence and in context, sort of the large arc of history. So that's where we're going. Let me pray for us again, and then we will get to work on this. Papa God, we thank you for your word. Um, even though this uh, section of scripture can be confusing, 
Um, we look to it for um, edification and encouragement for our hearts. Um, we ask that that would be possible by your spirit. Spirit, we invite your presence here, um, that you would do the thing that only you can do, which is to change our hearts and make them more like Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for um, not holding on uh, to your life dearly, but laying it down in love for us to rescue us and grant us righteousness that we do not deserve. Uh, we thank you for all these things. And it's in Jesus' name that we gather and that we pray. Amen. All right, so we already had chapter 12 read for us, which was great. You can go blank slide, next one. Um, chapter 12, so I won't reread all of that, uh, but then we'll read more as we get into chapter 13. But the very first person, the first character or symbol we see here is this woman. This woman that's clothed in the sun and the moon is under her feet and she has a crown of 12 stars and she's pregnant. Who does this woman represent? Well, there's a number of different possible interpretations, but largely speaking, she represents the faithful people of God. The faithful people of God. Um, and it is not uncommon for in Scripture God's people to be represented as a woman. We see this all through the Old Testament that God, as he's pursuing Israel, he, he refers to her as an unfaithful wife. That she's always committing adultery by going after other gods, worshiping other gods. And to illustrate this, uh, God goes so far as to call Hosea, the prophet, to marry an unfaithful woman, a prostitute, whom he redeems out of human trafficking, marries, and then she kind of gets sucked back into her old lifestyle. He goes out, redeems her again. She leaves again. Very painful. Don't become a prophet if you can help it. Um, and, and, and God says, that pain, that you see, that's the pain I feel, that you, that you pull away from me. Though I love you and my arms are out, reached out to, you, you leave me. We, we resonate with that because we understand what it is to have a marriage relationship, a covenant that God instituted between Adam and Eve, bring two very different people together in this special kind of relationship. And it is imbued with so much power that there isn't a single storybook or movie that dares omit a romantic you know, sort of storyline arc in the midst of it. Right? It's just less compelling without having that. Our culture almost worships it. We in the church have a tendency to elevate marriage to the point where we, we sometimes can look to it inappropriately and worship it as an idol. I think it's even one of our questions in the uh, annual spiritual uh, maturity survey uh, that we launched in January actually asked that, like, do you have an appropriate relationship towards the idea of marriage? There's a lot of young people in here, you guys are thinking about getting married someday, like, it can become an idol. And that's because it's so powerful. And so God is using this imagery and we, we, as the people of God, play that role. We are found inside that symbol or that image of the woman, the faithful people of God. Um, and so, but it doesn't stop there. We also have um, this tension that some people... There's a, there's a debate onto the way that we view the church and Israel in the book of Revelation and whether or not they have unique, separate, or together destinies. And as you can imagine, that would really impact the way that you read the book of Revelation. Does Israel go into the promised land, but like the church goes somewhere else? It's an interesting issue. Um, the, the technical debate around this, so you go to the next slide, is between uh, dispensational uh, theology and covenantal theology. And you won't be able to dig through this completely, but just roughly so you guys understand this. Dispensational theology is the idea that God works through time and history differently with different people in dispensations, creating almost like these little silos of people so that the people of God, Israel, have like a certain arrangement, but then God has maybe a different arrangement with the modern church, different things. And this comes out of this thing called the Schofield Reference Bible that 100 years ago, everybody had a copy was like the thing. And it had that in the commentary and people just kind of like, oh, it's gotta be the system. Um, so it's fallen a little bit out of vogue in the, in, I mean, a lot of people still hold to this. Um, but as reformed theology has sort of had a resurgence in the last couple of decades and our church would find itself in that vein of, of having reformed theology, there's this other view called covenantal. And covenantal is the idea that God works in human history through a series of covenants with like Adam, Noah, Abraham, you know, all the way to the new covenant with Jesus, and that each covenant sort of isn't creating a silo, but is actually sort of being re replacing the prior ones, modifying, continuing, and expanding, um, changing as it goes along so you don't end up with different 
groups of people. Now, so we would, as a church, would find ourselves more in the covenantal view of, of the way that we'd see God's operation in history. And so we wouldn't see a separate eternal destiny for Israel and the church, but that we are joined, we are grafted into the church. Certainly the initial part of the church was very Jewish and instituted that, that new covenant as Jewish men in that room. And so we would see it as being together. But it's important to note that those who would have an issue with covenantal theology would say, you know, what you're really doing is replacement theology because you are saying that you as a church replace Israel as the people of God. And that troubles them because of the many, many specific promises that God made to ethnic Israel. And I think that that's a real, like that's a real challenge for us to wrestle with theologically. And it should cause us as Christians to hold our theology, at least in these secondary issues, with open hands and humility. Because we, we, we really don't know for sure on some of these things. And it's okay on these types of things. You should make a decision, but you don't have to divide over it. But at least in this case, so you can go to blank slide, at least in this case, as we look at this woman, ooh, that's exciting. <laughs> um, as we look at this woman, we see in her both Israel and in her offspring, the church. We see that as those who, as was read, um, there's the, the offspring of those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we see the church kind of wrapped up in this figure. And not only do we see the people of God collectively, but we also see individual women represented in this symbol as well. Um, certainly those who carried the seed of the Messiah, um, starting with Eve and all the way culminating in uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. That, this, that, that, that these women are bringing along the one who is to crush the head of the serpent. Um, and we also see here with the sun, moon, and stars and all this stuff, we see these symbols of like Joseph's dream of his family, his brothers. So we see the people of God there. And the 12 stars, anytime you see 12 in this book, it represents God's people. And particularly when God's doing something new. So 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. Later, when we see New Jerusalem coming down, it has 12 points of entry. Um, it has 12 layers of foundation under the walls. You see 12 as, as meaningful in this way. So we have the woman, she's, she's going to give birth, but waiting there in front of her is this great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head, seven diadems or crowns. She's waiting that she might, he might devour the child, which is a pretty intense image. If you've ever, ladies in here have given birth, you imagine being in the hospital, you're trying to labor, extra stressful that there's someone in the room waiting to kill your child right? As you're like just, you know, working here. So um, you have this dragon coming in and the numbers of the heads and the horns and crowns clearly link back to the prophecies of Daniel. So a lot of imagery in Revelation is drawn off of Old Testament uh, prophecy in Daniel and other books that um, John's readers, initial readers would have been familiar with. And so he's pulling on this imagery. Um, and a lot of these things that Daniel was talking about were weren't necessarily people, but that they were um, nations and empires and systems that were set up in opposition to God. So in the red dragon, great red dragon, we have both Satan, who is identified later, he's identified as Satan and the devil, the deceiver of the whole world, but also the systems that Satan empowers. And we sense that in the world. Why can't, our, why can't as a world, as humanity, we get things right? Everything always seems to go sour. We're always at war. Companies are always lying to us and poisoning their customers, right? It just never goes right. And we're like, we'll get it next century. No, we won't. <laughs> Why? Satan. Satan working through these systems, right? He is our enemy and he's seeking to destroy us. And so we have this conflict that's happening here. And this dragon, Satan, is the self-same serpent that was in the garden when this all started with Eve. Um, we'll go to Genesis chapter 3 briefly. Um, to see this. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So right away at the very beginning, we're in the end of the Bible, if, you're, if Revelation's at the end. At the very beginning of the Bible, this whole conflict is kicked off. Right away, right away we see that there's this issue where someone who is going to be born of the woman is going to eventually defeat the serpent. Now, they all maybe thought it was going to happen like right away. She has two sons, and the serpent induces one to kill the other. Dead, morally compromised. Problem solved, right? No. 
Adam and Eve are supposed to fill the earth with children. So they got busy, you know, and there were a lot of people. And then eventually it gets really weird um, as you read further in Genesis because then it seems like Satan takes a different approach and angels are like maybe sleeping with women and producing giants and Nephilim and people with six fingers and toes. It gets really, really weird. And we don't have a lot in scripture. You can go outside of scripture to respected, um, but not scripture, history books like First Enoch or the book of Jasher. And then it gets more explicit about the giants and them, the angels trying to breed birds and horses and doing weird like genetic stuff. It gets really, really messy. So what's God do? Bath, bath time. Floods the whore. Let's just do, you know, control, delete, and reboot this thing. And, and then Noah and his family, they restart, new covenant with him, more specific rules. Now you're allowed to eat animals and things. Um, and so there's all of this, this sort of stuff that happens, and Satan's not allowed to interact with the human gene pool in the same way. Uh, but there's this sense of like he keeps trying to attack. Under Pharaoh, as God's people are in slavery, seeks to kill all the, first, all the little uh, children, and Moses is spared, right? And then eventually we get to Jesus, and still there's this line of the Messiah, and it's, you know, the, uh, the serpent is wise, Satan is wise, and he sees the significance of the prophecies being fulfilled and goes after these children through Herod and going to kill this child. This is a common theme in ancient pagan literature, that there's an evil ruler, and then there's a prophecy of a child to be born who will defeat the ruler. And so what's the evil ruler try to do? Kill the child while it's young, over and over and over again. Why? Because the true story we find in scripture acts as sort of like a monolith standing tall in all of its fullness, and yet it casts a shadow into all of these ancient cultures of them knowing sort of in a shadowy way, what's really happening on the earth, that there is this battle, this cosmic battle going. And so we see Satan working through the government world systems of the time, the corrupt Jewish leaders, um, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Roman uh, system empire, trying to squash Jesus. Jesus is rescued. They run off to Egypt. Later, as Jesus is baptized into his ministry, he goes into the desert, and the dragon meets him there and tempts him into moral failure. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. Jesus triumphs. And so finally, the empire is moved to take Jesus to the cross. But Jesus escapes, right? Yet again. No, Jesus dies. Satan wins, briefly. Very surprising, probably to Satan. He was like, huh, all these thousands of years, always thwarted, right? It's like those cartoons you watch as kids with the guy that turns in the chair and he has the cat and stuff. He's like, thwarted again, you know? Always thwarted, but not this time. Briefly, confusing. But then, of course, Jesus doesn't stay dead. Uh, we see in Revelation 5, um, as she gave birth to a male child, the one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God into his throne. In that one line, we have the entire life of Jesus, all the way to his ascension. And this helps give us some scale for the way that John is writing, what he's being shown. You ever look on a map, and you're like, what am I seeing here? And you look in the corner, and it's like, okay, one inch equals two kilometers. Right? That's sort of the scale. So if we look at this verse, we're seeing like John is being shown everything, all human history, like the biggest possible picture. It gives us that biggest scale. Um, we see this, this like 1,260 uh, days that was read, this period of time. We're going to see this over and over again. Sometimes it's called three and a half years. Sometimes it's called a time, uh, times and half a time, adding up to three and a half years. This could be uh, literal. So if you have a futurist perspective, he would take this very literal. Seven years cut down to half. Um, this is the kind of view that is pictured in like the Left Behind books. You guys are pretty young, most of you. Who read the Left Behind books? You bought a copy of Costco? Like three people. You guys don't even know, okay? This is like hardcore dispensationalism fan fiction. There was a movie with Kirk Cameron. Yeah, not great. <laughs> but not as bad as you might imagine. This is before about the banana thing, if you've seen that YouTube video. Um, anyways, really dating myself. But that is that, that's, that's the, taking it literally. It also could just mean like a perfect amount of time. Seven means perfect, cut in half, cut down. Um, and, and it could be of this whole age of protection and then persecution of the church. We don't know, we'll find out. But essentially we have this child that's born that's Jesus. And we have this battle now with the dragon trying to take it out and she escapes, right? She escapes and she is protected in this period of time, whatever it means, literally, it's a period of protection for God's people for, for the church, that God is protecting. Um, so Jesus doesn't stay dead. And as he 
rises. Verse 7 um, in chapter 12, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. He was thrown down. So what's interesting is, as we think about Jesus' sort of counterintuitive work on the cross, that somehow he dies in our place, paying for our sin, taking the consequence of death in our place, and then at the same time legally granting us his legal status of perfect, righteous, holy. It's very bizarre. We don't really understand how that works, but that's apparently what takes place that then we can receive his perfect status, which means we can go in God's presence, the Holy Spirit can dwell in us and we don't explode. Like, it's, it's amazing what takes place. That's what we see. But this is giving us the cosmic battle background of this, that as this is happening, Michael and the other angels are battling the dragon and casting them out of heaven. So up to this point, you may not think about this very much, but up to this point, Satan could like go to heaven and like hang out. You know, it doesn't seem, but you see this happening in like the book of Job. Satan's like, shows up and God's like, where you been? He's like, oh, you know, I was walking around the earth. God's like, you see my man Job? Pretty awesome. He's like, oh, yeah, well, he loves you because you made him rich. You know, they have this whole back and forth. That doesn't happen now. Why? Because Satan has lost his reason to be in heaven. Satan's not his name, it's his function. It means accuser. He doesn't even have a proper name. He's just the accuser. It says that he accused day and night. Accuse, accuse, accuse. I think of Satan and demons as lawyers. Suits. There's nothing on lawyers. I'm sorry if you're a law student. I'm not about lawyers. I'm just using it. I'm just saying it's like that. Because why? Because they would come in, open their briefcase, and accuse and be like, lawbreaker, lawbreaker, lawbreaker. And now Jesus is like, paid for. We have been separated, Paul says, by the death of Christ, we have been separated from the law. There's a sort of diplomatic immunity now. Satan had no purpose. Cast down. He is upset. Kind of like a person who knows, like, they have nothing to lose and they're just being destructive. They're like, I'm going to trash this place, right? That's what Satan's doing, as we see. Um, Woe to you. In great, he comes down in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Um, and as he comes down, he, he pursues the woman and he puts out a flood of water. And it, and it pursues her, and the earth swallows it, and she escapes. She's, she's protected. But this water is yet another symbol that John's using. And if you think about this, like, what is John doing? Like, he's really, like, making a series of, like, he's, like, making grenades and setting them on the shelf one by one. And you can kind of pull the pin on one of them, and it just explodes with layers of biblical meaning. So there's a lot packed into each of these. I re- originally, I was thinking, I'm like, I'd use a bath bomb analogy, but I've never used a bath bomb. I feel like it would just, I've never used a grenade either. These are both unfair analogies. That's, yes. But anyways, for the men, the, the, the grenade maybe. Um, and so if you, have a, if you have these different symbols, so in this case, the water is symboled as death. So like later, we're going to see like the new heavens and the new earth at the end of our study. And it's going to say, and there was no more sea. People read that and they're like, aw, the beach, surfing. You know, like what? What do you mean no more? You just get there to sand, you know? Terrible. No, it is no more death. If you look at the beginning of creation, as the Spirit is hovering over the waters, it's dark, watery chaos, death. And God calls light and life and begins to build, right? When he re- hits redo, water everywhere, death, redo, right? The flood and, and Noah is rescued and restarts. Um, we see this in uh, Moses in the Nile, rescued from the waters. That he brings people through the waters of the Dead Sea. That Joshua brings them later through the waters of the Jordan, that Jesus is put under the waters of the Jordan, watery, chaos, death, and brought to life. We do this when we do baptism. We say it like into the waters, like into, into the grave with Jesus and out to new life. We're symbolizing this, it's water. And so there's this water going that, that's going out after her and, it's, and death is pursuing her and it's stopped. The earth swallows it. And then we see him making war against the rest of her offspring. And now we get to chapter 13 so we can engage with the scripture more concretely because we haven't read this yet. And it's very interesting. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can pull them open. Revelation uh, 13. We start reading in verse 1. Remember, Satan's on the ground now. Verse 1, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and seven diadems or crowns on its horns and a blasphemous, and blasphemous names on its heads. 
And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? You have almost a reframing of Old Testament, like who is like the Lord? But now it's who is like the beast? There's a, there is a, a parallel here that John is drawing for us. Okay, so the dragon is now called up a beast. A couple things. First, Revelation 13 is very clearly drawing on the prophetic visions of Daniel chapter 7. So we need to use that as our lens. And in that, there were a number of beasts that came out of the sea, four of them. And we can look back historically and say, okay, like Persians, Babylonians, Romans, like we know who they are. It's quite obvious from the symbolism that's used. But what John's doing here is he's made like a super beast, like an uber beast out of these by combining them. Like if you watch Transformers in the 80s and they have those, like sometimes the Transformers get together and make a bigger Transformer. The new movies are not that great. But back then it was pretty awesome. And, um, and so we have this here. And this super beast is like two possible things. One, it may be just as at scale, all human systems in all time, all empires that were set up in opposition to God and God's people over and over again, just looking meta. And that's what this passage is generally doing. But it also may refer to a super beast in the future an uber beast, some bigger thing that's coming towards end, a, a, say, a global, uh, globe-spanning world empire or world system. And, of course, the futurist view would say that's definitely what's happening. Um, and then, of course, we, we would also, when we say the beast, we would say, what do we call this? Anyone? Antichrist, yes. And so John talks about the Antichrist in his uh, other letters, uh, First and Second John. He says there will be many little Antichrists, plural, and then like potentially this antichrist coming. Um, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians about the man of lawlessness, typically interpreted to be the same future person. But he says the spirit of lawlessness is at work in the world now. Now, we feel it now. This is, there's beastliness in the world systems now at the behest of Satan. So we have this sort of already not yet thing happening, but there may someday be someone who is the antichrist. And we don't know for sure, but we will find out together we're all going to see this eventually. Um, So if we take the work of Daniel as the more obvious primary lens through which to interpret this, um, these 10 horns appear to align with the bottom part of the statue that's Daniel's other major prophecy. You guys know this? It's got like the golden head and the torso and different things down to the iron legs, which we identify as being the Roman Empire. But then it goes into these sort of feet that are iron mixed with clay, they're a bit brittle, there's not a lot of continuity, and we don't have a clear identification of what that represents. It's very interesting to be able to do the statue and be like, bang, 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 and then something, something today, and we don't know what. So some people will theorize, say, well, you know, if you look at the Roman Empire, uh, where it was geographically in the world, sort of this European place, that if it broke apart into this sort of crumbly mess um, in Europe, the futurist view, they, for years, you know, they're like, man, if anything ever happens in Europe where some of those countries start working together, end times, right? And then in 1993, the European Union was founded. I was in eighth grade. People, futurist view, freaking out, freaking out, right? They're like, it's happening, you know, <laughs> like, and, uh, and then the people, they're building the European Union Parliament building in uh, Strasbourg, and what do they do? They, for the design you guys know this? For the design, they patterned it off this very famous painting of someone's idea of the Tower of Babel. <laughs> I'm like, now you're just screwing with the futurist, right? Like, you're just, I mean, freak, my mom's freaking out, you know, when she's seeing this. Um, but, you know, who knows? It's also like, it could be like, a, some people be like, yeah, but clearly it's happening. We don't know. We'll see. Losing their minds. Since Brexit does seem more brittle. So there's the, there's the brittle bit. Um, the main significance I want to highlight for us, though, is in you're looking at these like sevens and sevens of the, of the beast, is we have earlier with the slain lamb, represents Jesus, symbolically, seven horns, seven eyes. There, John is drawing a parallel here for us between these different entities um, and, and, and making that connection. Um, we'll see that more in a minute. Verse 5, 
And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name, his dwelling, and that is those who dwell in heaven. It also was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Seems global. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So God allows Satan to rule. It appears to be global, but it's still limited and subject to the ultimate control of God's sovereignty. So now Satan's on the ground like a rat in a box, just spinning, boom, boom, boom. And sometimes God makes the box bigger. He's like, you can do this now. And he causes destruction. And sometimes it's smaller. God's in control. God's using this. So we now begin to see humanity divided more clearly between those who are following the beast and those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life and who follow the Lamb, this division between humanity. There's two camps. And so another parallel starts to emerge at this point. So if you have the dragon is Satan trying to do what he's always tried to do, which is become God. That's what he's wanted from the beginning, to become God. And so like God the Father, the dragon has brought forth a son, the beast. And this beast, um, like Jesus Christ, like the lamb, somehow defied death. So Jesus was slain and resurrected. And here we see the beast sustained a mortal wound, dies. And then actually the word that John uses in here is the same word for resurrect. He's drawing this parallel, right? You see this. And if there's a literal antichrist someday, a man may die and actually by demonic power be restored from death and deceive many, because that would be a big deal, right? So just as Satan is the anti-God, the father, the beast is an anti-God, the son or an anti-Jesus, or an anti-Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 11, Then I saw another beast, beast number two, rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. And it exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence. It makes the whole earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. And it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it was allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and it lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak, might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So now we have this third entity, the second beast. And the dragon gave authority to the first beast who then gave authority to the second beast. So what we have here is actually a complete anti-trinity. So instead of father, son, and spirit, we have dragon, beast, and second beast, what John will eventually relabel as the false prophet. And just as the Holy Spirit is sent into the world by Jesus to turn hearts to him in worship, we have the second beast sent into the world by the first to turn hearts to him in worship. The parallels. Um, and to seek to steal away those who would claim to be followers of the Lamb to deceive them into following the beast. And we see this, even now, this beastly work of lawlessness going into the church and causing people to syncretize and become more like the world systems, which are run by Satan. And finally, just as we are sealed or marked in the Spirit, as we've seen a little bit earlier in our study, um, that the Spirit was going out and they were, they were marking those who belonged to the Lamb, um, as God's adopted children, this new beast goes around and seals or marks the followers of the beast with an anti-mark. Verse 16, it also causes all, both great, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. All right, so this is maybe like the high water mark in terms of people's interest in this passage. Like, oh, the mark of the beast. Well, let's talk about this. Everyone's interested in this. Christians, Satanists, death metal bands. Like the most satanic death metal bands are only singing Bible verses if you really get down to it. It's really funny. There's no middle ground there. Um, so we have to talk about this. 
Okay, first and foremost, I think we need to see this for what it is. Yet another lame attempt by Satan to try to mirror what God is doing to set himself up as God, not by creating or doing anything new or interesting, but simply by copying and perverting what God has already done. Um, Let's look at all the parallels. Slide time. Yes. Okay, so we have the woman versus what will eventually be identified as the whore of Babylon. Again, this is symbolic. Sometimes the woman is sort of associated with the new Jerusalem. So you have these two women, these two cities, these two people groups. You have God the Father versus the serpent slash Satan dragon. Jesus Christ slain lamb versus Antichrist slain beast. Holy Spirit versus second beast, false prophet. Now we have the mark of the spirit versus the mark of the beast. Mark of the spirit versus the mark of the beast. Um, just copies, that's all Satan can do. He can't create, can only copy and pervert. So as we look at the mark of the beast, I think my interpretation, and let me just say, there are a lot of possible ways that you could interpret this. I'm going to give you what I have found compelling as I've studied this, but you definitely should weigh that against other perspectives that you'll find out there because we do not know for sure. But this is what I, I feel is relevant for us, that as we see this parallel, it seems obvious to me that we must look to the mark of the Spirit for some indication of what is going on with the mark of the beast. And as the mark of the Spirit is invisible, I think that the mark of the beast would also be an invisible spiritual thing. I know some of you are worried about barcodes on your forehead or your arm, or every time you use your Interact card, you're like, oh, man. You know, like, it's just this whole payment system is concerning, right? Like, people stress this stuff, like, for real. Um, I don't think that's it. I think it's invisible. I think it's invisible. I think this passage as a whole makes it super clear there are two types of people in the world, those who follow the Lamb and those who are in bondage uh, to the beast, whether they worship it directly or not, or simply just worship themselves and are not worshiping the Lamb, that there are people who are sealed in the Spirit. And that uh, conversely, if you are not in the Lamb's book of life, if you're not sealed by the Spirit, you then are by nature an object of wrath, born into sin, born into bondage, born into death. That's just what it means to be a human being. We're born into this, which is why we needed rescue. This is why Jesus needed to come, to rescue people. He said, I've come to set prisoners free. You're either in jail or you're free, right? There's two categories. I think that's what this passage is saying here. Um, and that Satan has used this sort of like anti-mark to mark those areas. So you may be like, Pastor Brian, Pastor Brian, what about that buying and selling thing? Because that doesn't seem to be addressed. Well, remember that the dragon is representative both of Satan, but also the world systems that he is working through all the time. And anytime you have a sort of a a world system that that Uh, demands a sort of fascist level allegiance to what is being said, like you need to be this way, right? Then if you aren't that way, you begin to lose freedoms, freedom of speech, of movement, of assembly, of property ownership, of commerce, right? You you begin to lose these freedoms. Do do I think that that will be uh, possible or likely for Christians in the future at some point? Yes, I do. In fact, I would argue that it has always been true for some Christians somewhere on the planet, starting with the very first Christians, those who uh, John was writing to most explicitly, that under the Roman Empire that they had restricted freedoms um, because they were atheists. They didn't go to temple, right? Um, We do have um, some perspective on these trade guild things where you literally had to carry a mark to show that you were in good standing to do trade. And for preterists who say this is all in the past, they're like, that was it. That was the mark of the beast. It's over, right? Don't think so, but there's something to that. There was something tangible that they were experiencing even then. It's true today for Christians in places like Iran, right? They can't do just anything they want. There are restrictions because they don't follow the Islamic governing laws. Um, It's true for Christians in China. You don't go to the state church, but you go to the underground church. There are limitations on what you can do. And it is a little interesting and concerning to hear global leaders saying, man, what China's doing, not like the old communist China, but like the new technocratic China and their whole systems, man, we need to bring that here. That's, that's, that's coming to other Western nations. In fact, next time we have movement, who went to the movement conference? Some of you, any of you, a few of you? Man, you got to go next year. I think we should have someone from the Chinese underground church come and warn us, like, how's it going to be? Like, how are we going to do church, right? They'll be like, you got to be sneaky. you got to stay low, right? Um, this, is, this is possible for us in the future, but it is very true for some people um, now. Um, and we have 
um, as Canadians, enjoyed over the last couple of years an interesting relationship with governments, mandates, restrictions, control. Now, I'm, I'm going to just, I'm going to use this as an illustration with a great deal of caution and clarity because so many feelings, <laughs> you've so much feelings about the last two years. My point isn't to um, say anything, uh, you know, in particular about, you know, QR codes or, or this stuff. Um, I address this because in part, like people are asking that question within our own denomination, which is French. Uh, Pastor Trenton went to a meeting with some French pastors and one of them was like, when are we going to admit that this is the mark of the beast? You know, Everyone's like, oh, I don't think so. Um, but this is a real thing that people are wrestling with. I think it's poignant because we, as Canadians, experienced a system where the government basically sort of imposed some things. And actually, if you complied or you didn't comply, you got to enjoy some things or you did not. I did not comply. I did not get to enjoy certain movement of freedom of movement, certain commerce. I was shut out of certain places for certain periods of time. It was traumatizing. It was an interesting experience. This is what this will look like, feel like, if the enemy implements something that goes against us as a people. And I'm, again, I'm not assigning any sort of moral or spiritual weight to any someone's personal health choices, just to say that this is like kind of what that feels like. We've had a taste of it, what it could be like. And I think that like it's easier now for us to imagine a world where let's say you know, you're on Facebook and you know they're hoovering all of our personal data all the time. And then the government's sniffing it, sharing it with the five eyes countries. You know, they're not, Canada can't spy on you, but Australia can, right, Jordan? And then they just trade the information on the back end. It's totally legal. And they know everything, right? So you're, you're on Facebook and you share about a, a marriage event that you're excited about. You should go to this marriage event. It's gonna be really good. But the speaker who's been invited has made comments about human sexuality and gender that are from a biblical perspective and therefore are labeled as hate speech. And they could be said to incite violence, and therefore they're a domestic terrorist. And you just shared an event that's invited a domestic terrorist to speak, right? And so that hits your social credit score. It goes lower, and then the QR code you use to get into Tim Hortons to buy yourself an ice cap doesn't work anymore. And it says you have to go to a Zoom re-education camp put on by the World Economic Forum, right? So you're like, you laugh at that, but five years ago, we'd be like, now we're like, hmm. That's... That's a lot less crazy sounding than it used to. And that's the world that we live in now. We can see what it could be like. And I think that's important for us because as Westerners, for most of us, unless you've moved here, we have had an easy ride. We have not had to deal with anything imposing on us like this. So I think this is kind of that, this is to answer that question. This is how this could get worked out. Would that QR code be the mark of the beast? I, I personally still don't think so. I think it's an invisible mark of ownership. I think this is, this is about ownership. Who owns you? Who do you worship? I think that's the real thing that John is trying to point here, that this is spiritual. Now, a couple other things. What about Nero? Some people say, you know, you take Nero and you move the letters around in Hebrew, it adds up to 666. You can research that. The internet's full of stuff. It doesn't really seem to hold up. It's interesting. Um, what about um, 777666? Like, if 77 is, 7 is perfect, so you have perfect perfect, perfect. And you've got like Satan's crappy copy, 666, right? I like that one. May not be relevant. But what we do know for sure is that those who belong to the Lamb will eventually suffer. They're going to suffer under this system. There's that period of protection, but it seems to be lifted and there is suffering. And it doesn't seem obvious in scripture or even in this passage that we're just going to be raptured away before the bad stuff happens. Because then who are all those Christians going into the meat grinder, right? Uh, Kirk Cameron would say those are new Christians who felt bad that they didn't get raptured, but that seems unfair. <laughs> I think we're in trouble. Um, and I think John's main emphasis in this entire passage is saying it will get hard and persevere. It will get hard and persevere. I think that is his main point through this whole thing. All right, so we're going to run through into chapter 14. We're going to hustle because I know this is long. We're going to go a little faster. And essentially, if you think about chapter 12 setting the scene, chapter 13 was like crisis. Chapter 14 is resolution, and we're going to see the lamb win, and we're going to see, uh, we're going to kind of alternate between these two scenes of um, judgment and punishment for those who worship the beast or who simply aren't belonging to the lamb, and uh, uh, reward and rest and victory for those who are following the lamb. Um, so we're going to jump in, verse 1, 14. Then I looked. 
John looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. See, there's the mark of the Lamb there. No one writes death metal songs about the mark of the Lamb. Um, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. We'll talk about that. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, for they have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Okay, 144,000. That's that number that Jehovah's Witness will say, that's how many people get into heaven. You know, and they come to your house. I'm like, man, what are you pitching me? Like, obviously that number has been full for a while. So, you know, get out of here. It doesn't make any sense. No, this is not, this is symbolic, right? So you have 12 times 12 times 1,000. So you've got like Old Testament 12 tribes times 12 apostles. That's a nice, you know, math. And then times 1,000, which in Revelation is just a number for bigness, right? It's a lot. This is the woman. This is the faithful people of God. These are who get to learn the song of the, of the Lamb. The reference to virgins here and sexual purity is not actually just celibate males, but it's a metaphor for uh, moral purity. Moral, moral purity that is granted to us by the Lamb, given to us, gifted to us. Um, and we see this here in the word redeemed, right? This is what Hosea had to do when his wife ran off. She's like, I'm being human trafficked again. He would go and redeem her. He would buy her out of slavery. So this is where we've been redeemed out of, and we've been granted spiritual virginity, in a sense, is what John is saying. And we are shown as his first fruits, his harvest. You know, a bit of agrarian theme through the rest of this chapter, so you can get your overalls on and get on your tractor. Uh, we're going to ride this through the rest of this thing. And at this point, all the Christians have been killed. It's over. And now they get to enjoy rest and reward in the presence of the Lamb. And we're going to see a series of angels fly overhead, three of them. So verse 6, first one. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel or good news to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. Even here at the very end of time, Jesus is sending out his messengers saying like, I love you, I died for you, turn to me, turn to me, please. But people generally do not. And remember that all through this process, God is in control. He's allowing, he's allowing the enemy to do these things, and he's pouring judgment. And every judgment, though, is just, is also what C.S. Lewis calls a severe mercy. It's the idea that when someone gets cancer, they start to think about mortality. They start to think about God. They find a Bible, a Gideon Bible in a hotel room, and they meet Jesus, and they walk with him forever. Getting cancer sucks. But turning to Jesus was worth it and they wouldn't take it back. It's a severe mercy. All of these punishments, all these judgments, all these bowls of God's wrath, you're like, man, God's so much anger. He's got a bowls of it into his wrath of cut. You know, it's like, that's a lot of anger. But God is justly anger, angry against um, um, truly awful things, things that we can't even appreciate that, are, that, that we should feel more righteous anger about. And it's righteous and just, and yet at the same time in his whimsy, he uses it to draw people to himself, to bring them to an end of their own pride their own stubbornness. It's not too late. Verse 8, a second angel followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So again, this is not sexual sin alone, but just general law breaking. And we have this is eventually developed into the whore of Babylon as a sort of a counterpoint to the woman. Verse 9, and another angel, a third, followed him, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is one of the most awful images in Scripture. This is one of the hardest things to read. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that Satan is not ruling at this point over the lake of fire. Um, It's Jesus. Jesus is the ruler. Um, At some point, Christian history gave the pitchfork to Satan, but Scripture presents Jesus as holding that as a sorting mechanism for sorting the wheat from the chaff. 
um, another farming thing. But Jesus rules. He rules over all. All things have been put under him. And he makes it a footstool of his enemies. Um, this torment, it's hard for us to imagine, but it is unending. It, there's an eternal nature to it that's mirrored in Matthew 25 with the eternal rest of the, those who follow the Lamb, that both states are eternal, that everyone is, in a sense, resurrected imperishable, and they can't die. You don't die in heaven, but you also can't die in hell or in the lake of fire. It's very terrible. Contrasted with this is the fate of those who follow the Lamb, continuing in verse 12, and we'll read through the rest of the chapter here. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. There's his main theme, endurance. Those who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And then I looked and behold on a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called out in a loud voice. I don't know why everyone is shouting in heaven all the time, but if you have sensory issues like I do, it's concerning, right? It's going to be loud. Um, a loud voice to the one who has the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung in sick his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside of the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia or 180, 180 miles. Who stood next to a horse before? Bridle here, somewhere, deep for 180 miles. Hyperbole maybe, or literal, futurist maybe, Kirk Cameron, a lot of blood. The agrarian metaphor of the wine press breaks down when it's just, it's basically bloodbath. Again, it's this very terrible image. Um, we can't have, we don't have time to dig into all of this stuff, but essentially what we're seeing here is a great harvest and sorting. At the end of all things, at the end of this cosmic battle, when we have victory and the lamb has won, there's going to be the harvest and the sorting. And we see this in scripture other places. I already mentioned the wheat and the chaff. Um, we see it in other places in Revelation, the goats and the sheep. It's like everyone's mixed right now. This is a mixed room. Some of you may be with the lamb or the beast, and it's a separating that takes place at the end of time. And the followers of the lamb, there's sort of an, a grain thing going on. They're brought into the storehouse, but the grapes um, are those who follow the beast, and they are go into the wine press. Um, so finally, we'll look one last place. If you jump to chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, give us just a final picture of those who are at rest with the Lamb. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So at the end of all things, those whom the Lamb has made holy will stand with him and, and, and worship God by enjoying him forever. That they will never be unsatisfied again. They will never be bored again. Um, there's this image of the, of the crystal sea, like the, 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 the waters that are like crystal, that are super flat. Like if you have your smartphone and you look at it, it's like the Gorilla Glass, it's so smooth, right? That perfection is pleasing to us, right? Um, Apple is pursuing perfection. They're just a few phones away, but they have to meter it out to us. They can sell us new ones, right? But there's this sense of like stillness. That's that water, that chaos. It's representative of that, that death and that rebellion chaos. It's been smoothed like glass, perfection. Our hearts long for perfection as human beings. We were designed for it. We're not designed for this mess that we're in now. It sucks, right? But we're, we, that perfection is going to be give, given and gifted to those who are with the Lamb. All right. Conclusion and application. I know that normally when you have a sermon, you are owed three main points, right? I have done zero. I've made a bunch of random comments. 
Um, so you're going to get your money's worth. Three main points as we, as we wrap this up. First, this passage shows us that there is no middle ground. There's no middle ground. You go to someone, and you're like, do you worship Satan? Most people are like, no, I don't. I mean, once in a while, someone will say, oh, yeah, I do. But there's no middle ground. So what we see in the world is we generally have people who are like, oh, yeah, I definitely. Some people do worship Satan. You can find them. There's also those Jesus people uh, on the other side, right? But most people would probably put themselves in the middle. And they're like, oh, which team are you on? And they're like, oh, I'm not playing. I'm just watching. I'm just, you guys have fun, right? I'm just watching. And you remember that Satan, as the ruler, designer of the world system, the, the way that we think, this perspective, this is his design. He loves this. He loves that people think that there's this middle category. Next slide. That's the reality. That's the reality. They don't know. There is no middle ground. There are people who belong to the lamb, and there are people who don't. There's no middle ground. And if, you, if you're connecting with that, and you're seeing that, and you're like, huh. That's that angel then repent, saying, like, repent. Jesus is offering you rescue. You are, you are trapped. You are imprisoned to Satan. And Jesus offers rescue for free. He invites you to make him your savior and your king and your treasure. That you would ask him to save you. That you would give him rule over your life. That you would treasure him most. Which you can't naturally do, but the spirit gives us a new heart that loves Jesus. It's weird. Um, and loves the things that Jesus loves. No middle ground. Secondly, you can be deceived about which side you're on. Some folks clearly put themselves in the Jesus camp. They're like, oh yeah, I go to church three, four times a year. I have a Bible. You know, I'm, I'm on Jesus's team, right? Next slide. This is also true from this passage. This is also true. There are folks who do the church thing and put themselves on team Jesus, but they're not really. They're not really. And as we're gathered here as the church, they, like some of you could be in that camp right? Deceived. Jesus isn't your savior, king, and treasure. He's not your savior because you've never asked him to save you from your sin. He's not your king because he can't tell you what to do or think. And you don't love him most. He's not your treasure, right? This is concerning. Like, search your heart. Search your heart. Are you actually uh, repentant? Have you actually asked Jesus to rescue you and had faith that he's able and allowed him to free you from your sin and give you eternal life? Third and finally, it's clear from this passage that Christians are going to suffer, that it's going to be hard. Um, and again, most of us in this room have probably had it super easy thus far, but it's not normal. It's not normal that Christians have it easy. Suffering is probably coming for us as well. But if we go to the victory, yes, victory. That's what we titled this. This is what John's saying. He's like, if you look at all of this agony, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. So no matter what little suffering you go through in this life, even if it's all the way to the point of martyrdom, it is nothing compared to eternity enjoying the perfections of the Lamb. Nothing. Nothing. I like to say, this life is just a long weekend before eternity. It's over fast. The Bible describes this as mist. You're like, come see the mist. It's misty. Oh, you missed it. It's the sun came. It's gone, right? We don't last long. And yet... In a weird way, we have all designed to be immortal. We will all be resurrected. We will all exist forever. That's the way human beings were made. That's why we long for immortality in a certain sense and read vampire novels, you know, whatever. Like, it's because that's what, deep down, it's weird to think that we don't exist. We will always exist, but where? Either being our own God or acknowledging the Father as God in Jesus. The victory has already been won. Um, I'll wrap here with Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 7. It's in him, in the Lamb, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And that is what we are looking at today is the fullness of time. Everything that is to happen. To unite all things in him, in Jesus, things in heaven and things in earth. Jesus wins it all. Jesus wins it all in the end. Pray with me. Lord, uh, thank you.
thank you um, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us, that though Satan sort of takes a little bite out of the church cookie, we uh, take a bigger bite out of the kingdom of darkness, that you, Jesus, came to free prisoners. I ask that you would do that in this city. As was prayed earlier, that there would be change, uh, that you alone are able to free people. You would, I ask that you would cause us to be faithful in our task to declare the good news, that there is a way out, that freedom can be had, that holiness can be received as a free gift, righteousness to stand before you and not perish. Um, just to declare that good news, but you, Spirit, we ask that you would cause those seeds to grow and bear fruit. Um, only you can do that. I ask that you would give us boldness for this task. Um, and Spirit, you even now would be present working in us, making us uh, more and more dependent on Jesus and more and more like him. And we pray all this stuff in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as always, we're going to go into a time of response. Um, I hope that as you're wrestling with this, there is encouragement and challenge and um, that you, you think deeply about these things. Um, which camp are you in? Who are you worshiping?